Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keen, and this is Ink Heist. Uh, I'm here today with my co-hosts, Laurel Hightower and Rich Duncan. And we also have our guest host, Tracy Robinson, for the second time today. Uh, welcome, Tracy. Hi, thanks for having me again. Pleasure, pleasure. We're happy to have you. You always bring some intellect that's severely lacking, except for Laurel, so... Nice save. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and kick this thing off, and um, we'll call Paul in. Um, I guess that's all we really need to do right now. I'm excited about this one, so I'm nervous. Uh, and don't worry if any of us says anything stupid, except for Paul, we'll cut it. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Okay. <laughs> there he is. All right. Oh, we're early, aren't we? We are uh, early. Yeah, a couple minutes. Yeah. Earlier the better. Get him started. Get him out. Unless he doesn't answer. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Paul, how hey, are Paul. you? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, introductions to voices. This is Shane. That was Rich. Hey, this Shane. is Laurel. Hey, hey Laurel. This is, this is Tracy. Hey, Tracy. Tracy's ah. guesting. group here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've already done our introduction and we're recording, so we thought we'd just jump right in, Paul. Okay. Um, this has been a long time coming, man. I feel like I've been waiting for this conversation for 10 years now. <laughs> well, it's very nice to talk to you. It is. Uh, so I know a lot about you. Um, I think most of us know something about you, but could you just give a quick rundown for our listeners of who Paul Tremblay is? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a horror writer, and um, geez, I'm trying to, was this like my eighth novel that's coming out, Survivor Song? But um, the ones that people have read <laughs> are A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, and The Cabinet at the End of the World. Um, I don't know. I'm tall. I like basketball, and I have no uvula. How's that? <laughs> that <laughs> I, I read about that. I read about that uvula earlier today, actually. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so I knew that yeah, going. It seems, it seems to be an odd thing to be proud of, but it's just like, yeah, <laughs> there probably aren't too many of us out there. I'll own it though, <laughs> right? <laughs> So uh, you've got uh, that, and you've got Survivor's Song coming out. Um, you're also the mathematician known as P.T. Jones, right? That's correct. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Or one, or one half of that, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the full P.T. Jones. I'm just half of it, the P.T. part. Right. Right. Oh, that's right, because you guys did that together. Yeah. I'm talking about Stephen Graham Jones, and Paul did a collaboration together for chai teen i think right yes the floating uh the floating boy and the girl who couldn't fly right i hesitate because we had like so many different titles <laughs> before we <laughs> uh, settled on that one um anyway uh we're happy to have you here we're happy to talk about all this stuff you also wrote that narcoleptic detective stuff which a lot of people i know have read but i think that's kind of a microverse of indie readers mostly, but I don't know. Yeah, and those are actually going to be re-released in early 2021. 
Uh, right on. With my current nice. publisher. Yeah. So those weird detective novels will be put back out there. Cool. That's excellent. Are they, um, I noticed that you've gotten a lot of, I really like the Daniel Serac uh, covers that you've been doing with this. Is it the special releases of the, of your current kind of catalog that have been going out with those? Um, so, well, so the little sleep and no sleep to Wonderland will be published by William Morrow, you know, my, my U S publisher and actually my UK publisher as well. Um, um, there is going to be a special edition of those two books, but I don't think I can say just yet. Um, gotcha. But there will be there will be special. I mean, it's it's happening. I just don't. I, it hasn't been announced. I don't think so. Right. Um, yeah, but no, it's nice that people have some interest in the, those older, those other two novels. Yeah, I definitely want to get the uh, Cabin at the End of the World because that's one of my favorites of yours. So having a special edition of that one is a must-have. I think. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for that SST publications in the UK, that's the Daniel Sarah um, cover art. But also Dark Regions Press is putting out a limited of, of Cabin 2. Um, the SST one's already out. I'm not sure when the Dark Regions uh, version will be out. Oh. So I don't, everyone has like a flow chart for that. That sounds really confusing. But. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't take much to confuse me, and a flowchart would do it. <laughs> well, and so um, you've been doing, I guess, kind of a lot of your promo with this, um, doing virtual readings and and podcasts and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's certainly not going to there. There won't be any in-person uh, appearances. You know, like I think the rest of the, the publishing world is, is dealing with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. You're in Boston, so probably best to stay stay indoors as much as you can. No, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, you know, Massachusetts and Boston was one of the, you know, initial hotspots in the U.S. Uh, you right. Know, definitely, we got hit hard. Um, things have been trending better lately, but you know, as as we've seen in other states, that doesn't mean it's always going to go in that direction. Yeah. So you know, I'm hopeful. I feel like my state's been pretty careful. Um, most people are sort of, or <laughs> I think doing the right thing, but I don't know. It's human nature to be like, oh, it hasn't happened to me yet. It's not going to happen. So, you know, I already see like neighbors and stuff just having parties, and it's just like, ah, <laughs> please stop. <laughs> I, yeah, I do too. I do too. And well, I had a neighbor walk up and knock on my door and try to hand me something. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, I don't want that. but uh yeah paul so um you know i'm sure you i'm sure you've gotten this a lot but um you know writing a book it you know it it takes like years you know from when you first get the idea to the finished thing so it's kind of like a weird coincidence that you know survivor's song it kind of deals with like an outbreak and it just so happened that you know it coincided with this kind of like that uh i forget which book but like everyone was pointing to like the dean coons book and was like Mm -hmm. oh he kind of predicted this like is it kind of surreal and like you know how has it been for you that you know you kind of wrote this book way before this happened but like when i was reading it it was kind of like eerily similar yeah um i mean i certainly take no pride or joy out of you know, the eerie, you know, similarities, mm-hmm. um, you know, part of it is like that information has been out there. I mean, 
I, I am no virus expert or pan, or pandemic expert. Would never paint myself as one, you know. But like, we've all been hearing for years that it wasn't a matter of if, but when, you know, a pandemic would happen. Um, so I think a lot of it, unfortunately, wasn't, you know, wouldn't take much to to sort of forecast something like that happening. Um, you know, in the case of my book, which I started in July of 2018 and finished, you know, I turned in my draft to my publisher in August of 2019 and then, you know, two months of edits. You know, they weren't really like heavy edits either. But, you know, so in October, late October of 2019, the book was done and they, they sent it off to the, the printer. Um, you know, so I will say, um, one, like I, I hate research. Can I admit that? <laughs> I just don't, I should say I hate it. I just, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, you know, my, you know, I was never an English major or a writing major in school, you know, so I wasn't taught like how to do that kind of stuff, you know, so it's, it's always out of my comfort zone, but you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, it's good to push yourself. So anyway, um, you know, I leaned heavily on my sister <laughs> for what research I did do for this book. Um, in terms of what would the response, the local response be to an outbreak, you know, I didn't want to write a book about like the CDC or, or, you know, the, the, the government's response to an outbreak. Cause I feel like we've seen so many of those books and movies, and, you know, and so many of them do a great job. Like, uh, I feel like I wanted to tell like a more localized story. And then from even there, you know, focus on this two friends. So anyway, my, my sister who is a nurse at a big city, you know, one of the biggest hospitals in Boston, in 2014, unfortunately, sort of got a preview of what might happen when um, when they began preparing for Ebola patients. Like in 2014, you know, I forget the exact number, but a few people suffering from Ebola showed up on our shores, and you know, and a few people got it passed to them. And my sister's hospital was going to be one of the hospitals that, in our area, would take Ebola patients. And I don't know. Let's just say that like their the hospital's initial response to like, hey, here's our ideas weren't really didn't fill you a lot, didn't fill you with confidence or certainly didn't fill my sister with confidence. Um, you know, luckily, luckily, there was no big outbreak of Ebola in 2014. And also, luckily, like the, the hospital's subsequent plans that they sent out you know, to the nurses were a lot more reasoned and and. Um, I don't want to say humane, but maybe I'm just too tired because it's Saturday night. But, you know, like the first few responses, you know, were sort of saying, hey, we're not going to have enough PPE. So that's, you know, the first time I've ever heard of that sort of acronym, you know, personal protective equipment. Um, so anyway, so it was, you know, a combination. I just happened to have this idea that I wanted to sort of riff on the zombie, even though they're not really zombies and, you know, and, and getting help from my sister. And, and then here we are. Um <laughs> Uh, I'm going to write a kid's book next. <laughs> I don't, you know, so, so, nothing bad, so nothing bad happens. <laughs> well, I think this is, I mean, what really sets this apart as is just a running theme in, in your books is how immediately involved we feel with the characters and their fate. Um, and I just, you know, I feel like that's what cabin at the end of the world. I swear, like I started reading that, you know, in like 2% and I'm like, I am so tense. I can't possibly go to bed. So I'm going to have to find out what goes on. But, you know, all of that is, is just the skill of weaving in, like, you know, you automatically have a concern for these characters and what's going to happen to them. And I just think that's, you know, I think that was a really good approach to do the, on the, on a smaller scale of it. Um, well, th thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just thought, I thought you're, 
you know, your main characters that you had here were very strong. Um, and I also think I, I think that's interesting. Your sister was involved in that because in particular that that um, that early text message conversation between the nurses right. was very like I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that rings extremely true. Yeah, no, that was something my sister definitely helped me with. Um, and, and even like I remember at the time of, you know, when they were talking about what they would do if Ebola, you know, was in Boston, you know, she showed me the, the texts that her and her nurse friends were sending back and forth. And I don't know, I was always struck by the humor, the candor. Um, all, I mean, all just, I mean, it shouldn't have struck me, but, you know, you, always, you realize again and again and again that, you know, people are people. They have human responses. They're, they're afraid. They're making gallows humor jokes. But I was also really struck that at the end of it, they're like, yeah, but, you know, I'm still going to go in tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, which was very real. Uh, my sister was is a nurse too. She's mm-hmm. a hospice nurse, and um, you know, as you know, the pandemic doesn't stop them from having to go and do their job. Right. Um, and yeah, so it's just at the end of the day, no matter what happens, you're still going to be going in and taking the chance. Mm-hmm. Well, my best to her. Yeah, yeah. To to any nurses out there. Absolutely. But uh, it's interesting to me um, the the theme you chose is interesting to me. But because your themes are always interesting to me for a simple reason, um, and that is, it's like if I were pretending to be Paul Tremblay and somebody asked me what my first thought about a story was before I started writing it, it would be, how can I take this theme? turn it on its fucking head and shake it until something new falls out, you know? And that seems to be your general approach to horror is what can I make this do that nobody's made it do before? Yeah. I mean, well, thanks. I mean, I don't know. I I definitely try to like take a a trope and maybe spin it. I, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, no one's ever done something like this before because I'm sure they have, but um, in some way, but I don't know, like, like, so I, I thought it was funny. So I mentioned I started in July of 2018. <laughs> this book was the last deal on my contract. So it had a due date of August 20, August 2019. For, for months, I'd had this other book in my head thinking I was going to do it, but I totally procrastinated, you know, mainly because I wasn't ready to write it or not willing to write it for whatever reason. Um, it's now it's July of 2018. And I'm actually on book tour in England <laughs> sitting on a train. <laughs> yeah, my first time, my first time ever off the continent um, in England. I'm like, oh crap! I've got like barely a year to come up with the next book. It's not going to be this other book. You know, what the hell am I going to do? And I just happen to be. So I had like, I keep writing notebooks, like really small ones. I don't write longhand, but when I'm trying to fish around for ideas or brainstorm character stuff, that's what I use as a little notebook. So I can't tell you the what if. I mean, I can tell you when we stop recording if you've read the book. But the what if that I wrote in my notebook would totally spoil the book. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, I wrote zombie trope. Like, how would I, you know, muck around with this? You know, because I also knew I didn't want to do, at least now, like I didn't want to do another sort of ambiguous supernatural novel. Um, You know, I love that Head Full of Ghosts and Disappearance of Devil's Rock and the cabinet, the end of the world sort of fit together. I mean, they're not, they're not a trilogy of books, but I like how those three books sort of like play off each other and, and fit like a cool little arc 
with, you know, different families in distress and also a different kind of supernatural element maybe taking place. So, you know, I, I know that people would get sick of, oh, is it supernatural or not? It's like, I can't do that forever either. So I got to try to do something, you know, somewhat different with the next book. So those were all the things that I was sort of thinking about um, when the idea got rolling. And, uh, you know, as is a sort of lucky happenstance, I'd happened to a listen to an audiobook about rabies and that just sort of stuck with me because it was just fascinating. It's like, Oh, if I'm doing, how would I like ground like a sort of zombie story in reality? It's like, Oh, rabies is, <laughs> is such a freaky uh, virus. Like I figured I could play with that. I don't know. Did I answer any sort of question? I just went off on a ramble. I tend to do that. Oh no. Perfectly. perfectly. <laughs> um, I think that like what yeah, Shane sorry, said with how you take the themes and you turn them on their head, you do it in your short fiction too. Um, for instance, uh, Harold the Spider-Man. And the, I, I listened to it in the Come Join Us by the Fire put out by Tor Nightfire. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't what I was expecting either. I was like, Harold the Spider-Man, so it's going to have spider legs, like what's going on? And it was completely, <laughs> you know, it was completely unexpected. And I find that interesting that it's not only your long fiction that has it it's also in the short little bites that you give us too oh well thanks um yeah that's a weird little story i don't know i mean (laughs) i uh you know so many of us grew up you know or when we became readers depending on like what age you became readers i don't know especially in the last 20 years there are so many people who are are mixing genres you know, whether it's science fiction or horror or literary fiction and horror, because literary fiction is a genre, um, you know, it, it's not a it's not a marker of quality. Like a, a literary fiction story is one that, you know, uh, this might be too simple, but, you know, literary fiction tends to go character over a plot. Um, but anyway, I mean, I feel like, you know, we you know, the things I've been reading, you know, since 2000 and all these people who are unafraid to, to mix and do you know, different things. Um, and those are my favorite kind of writers and really one of the first writers who ever really sort of mentored me. Uh, sorry, my dog's going to bark because there's uh, <laughs> fireworks going off. Hey, I'm going to have to get her upstairs. Come on. No we'll worries. Talk while I walk her upstairs. <laughs> walk her up. I didn't say walk. I said walk. I'm going to give her to my wife. <laughs> oh, there she goes. Um, anyway, so one of my, uh, you know, writer whose career, you know, I totally admire is Stuart Arnan. Um, he's someone oh, who, yeah. who, you know, for pretty much all of his career has done, you know, a different kind of novel, especially like in his early going, he, you know, did this like pastoral, he did this like crazy, you know, mid to late 1800s Western horror novel. That's just so depressing and, and terrifying. Um, you know, that he's, he's written like a baseball book and he just writes all these different kinds of things. Um, you know, I also think of someone like Megan Abbott, who I feel like, you know, you know, started off writing sort of hard-boiled crime, but then, like, I want to say she pivoted, but she writes these things that use crime, but, like, in totally unique and different ways. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that's – those are the things I'm, I'm interested in reading. Um, so it's – you know, those are hard targets to aim for, but I figure if I aim and don't hit it, but if I get close enough, I'll be all right. So, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, and I really, I mean, you you know, you're describing that as something to aim for, but I, I was kind of thinking, so Head Full of Ghosts was one of the first 
books that kind of got me back into horror after a slump because, you know, I foolishly did not know about the entire indie horror scene. Uh, so I, I'd kind of run through everything that I had and then I picked up head full of ghosts and I, you know, I really loved it and then started looking for anything else you had. And also you recommended Stephen Graham Jones, um, I think in your acknowledgements in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, that was one of the things like, I, <laughs> this is something that I'm trying to get better about, but I've never, I am terrible with symbolism. Like I don't even know when it's happening. So to me, like head full of ghosts was, was extremely instructive and in, like being like, okay, this is ambiguity, but it's like, it was just accessible ambiguity, if that makes sense. It was like I got to the end of it and I was like, okay, I'm not sure, but I'm okay with that because, you know, there was just yeah. so much to it. And the the horror homage in that was just excellent. I just loved, you know, being able to see like all the little ticking all the little boxes. I love that. <laughs> well, thanks. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I got really lucky with that story idea, you know, sort of stumbling upon it. Um, I think it's a good way of putting it. I think that, you know, because the exorcism or possession story is so pervasive you know, especially in, you know, film culture and horror country uh, and horror culture in this country in particular. Um, you know, I think that readers could really pick up on like, oh, yeah, like we don't know if she's possessed or not. And that's going to be the thing uh, throughout the whole book. And so hopefully, you know, for hopefully for most readers at work, that the whole idea, like to me, the horror of the novel was just the state of ambiguity that they are in. But you know, hopefully that mirrors I think our existence, you know, just the the state of ambiguity we all live in. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, it was uh, a <laughs> now that book is, you know, forever will be special to me. It was it was mostly fun to write. I say mostly fun because <laughs> <laughs> writing I don't know, writing for me is really hard. Uh, I love being done, like when it's finished. That that's the part sort of I'm addicted to. But when I'm in the actual act of writing, it's I think like most writers, it's frustrating and pride bruising and, you know, most days. <laughs> <laughs> You're that kind to yourself? <laughs> yeah, I guess I am. Yeah, I kick my ass. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, I had a – sorry, I got distracted by something in my notes um, and forgot what I was going to say. So I'll just spit this out. Um <laughs> Are you the guy who's who's Laird Barron told his kid a horrifying story about what happened to his eye? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Sorry. I had to bring that up because that was freaking hilarious when he told that. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you feel about that as a parent, Paul? <laughs> oh, I mean, I well, so I believe I'm pretty sure it's uh, Laird's Swift to Chase, his collection. And, you know, and had the great honor, you know, he asked me to write an introduction for that collection. So in that collection, I, I talk about that story a little bit because, you know, I'd met him the year before, you know, so I knew Laird, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know him like I know him now. And so like, I, you know, I, I think John Langham might have told me or just, it was just, no, it's like, Hey, you know, don't talk about his eye patch. Like he's sensitive about it. And, you know, as he should be. Um, you know, so I was trying to prep my kids because I knew my daughter, Emma, is, you know, very precocious at the time, like say anything kind of kid. You know, she was four, I think. You know, and so my son was four years older. He was eight. You know, my son's the rule follower. My daughter is definitely the boundary pusher. <laughs> and so, like, um, you know, they're great. We had a little barbecue out my little backyard. And the moment I went inside and left them alone with Laird by themselves, <laughs> Emma was like, so 
what's with the eye? (laughs) 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 And and hearing like Laird retell it to me afterwards is funny because he said, Cole looked like my son looked like he was horrified, but you know, he definitely wanted to hear the answer. (laughs) And Laird just said, is your dad ever tell you not to run with scissors? No, run with a pencil. I think he said, and that's all he said. He just like nodded his head after they said, yeah. He's like, well. <laughs> so he provided a cautionary tale, too. He kind of did you a little bit. Yes. No, he did. Yeah. So as a parent, I was like totally happy. I was like, ha, huh, thank you for doing some of my work for me. <laughs> thank you for that. I always wanted to know the know both sides of that story. <laughs> Uh, so, Paul, uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about, and um, like I'm a relatively new reader. I I kind of started like with some of the newer releases, but um, if you could kind of touch on it with it, hopefully it's not a spoiler. I don't think it is because mm-hmm. it's like kind of before the book starts, but you've kind of done some interesting stuff with you know like some of the structure in your writing um like in particular you did it with a haunted house is a wheel upon which some are broken where it was kind of like a choose your own adventure thing um but also with a survivor song like you kind of give a warning like right at the beginning like don't be alarmed that there's going to be you know like blank spaces or blank pages (laughs) and i was just kind of curious if you like if you kind of like playing with those different forms and maybe if you could kind of touch on like what inspired you for, I guess either one or both. Um, Cause the choose your own adventure thing was cool, but I would imagine that that's gotta be something tricky to put together. But I was also kind of curious, you know, what inspired you with the blank pages things of survivor song. So with um, the a wheel is a, uh, a wheel is a, Haunted House on Which We Are All Broken. What a terrible title. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, that one I had read. Is it Kevin Brockmeyer? Uh, why am I so bad with names? I think it's Kevin. He, he had written. So I, I had written a few. I had read other people doing a Choose Your Own Adventure story. And like one of the best I've read is, is uh, Kevin Brockmeyer's. I can't remember the name of the, the damn short story. But it's heartbreaking because no matter what you choose – what path you choose, this you know elderly gentleman ends up having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of paths that you might choose, you think, oh, maybe like you're gonna get into the hospital in time. I don't know. I just thought it was a wonderful. I thought it was. No, I mean, not was just fun because it was different, but it was there for a reason. Um, and I, and I think that's the harder part because I don't know. I mean, at at heart, I mean, I'm 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 definitely a mimic. Like I got into reading. Because, I mean, into writing because I loved writing i mean i loved reading and i wanted to try some of this cool stuff that people do you know i think that's a holdover from you know my first you know when i was a little kid like a little skinny short little kid like i wanted to be larry bird so i spent hours in the backyard shooting free throws you know it never got me anywhere but that that was like my first (laughs) mimic and then you know i wanted to be a punk guitar player and i you know learned how to play guitar but i wasn't good enough so writing was the only one that i was able to (laughs) make a go of it with so i don't know i mean that's kind of like i see people do really exciting stuff and i want to try it um so certainly i think that's the case with a lot of like the different sort of narrative techniques i've used um you know there's another story in growing things called 19 snapshots at dennisport 
you know, and I, and I credit Seth Lindbergh in the story notes in the back, but, you know, he wrote a, a story about, you know, a zombie story using snapshots in San Francisco. It's just so well done. It's like, oh man, I need to do, I want to try something like that someday. Um, as far as like the blank pages go in Survivor Song, um, you know, one of my favorite novels is House of Leaves, which is full of typographical tricks. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, I, I try to be really cognizant of, you know, if it's just a trick, people, it's not going to work. It has to, it has to have a reason to be there. Um, so some of the reason that the, I don't know, I love the idea of using like that white space to help tell a story. And um, I don't know, I feel like if I explain like how I use some of the white space, it's yeah. sort of a spoiler for, for some of the book, but um, for, for me, like, you know, it usually starts with like, oh, that'd be cool to have like, you know, extra space or use blank pages. I'm like, well, why would I do that? I would have to have a reason to do it. So sometimes it, it starts like that. Yeah. I definitely yeah, agree that. Cool. Go ahead. Yeah, I definitely agree that. <laughs> Sorry. I My. definitely agree that, um, you know, playing with different techniques and having it have a reason is important because that's one of the things that's kind of scared me off of reading House of Leaves because the reviews are so wild about that like wildly different um but i've seen it done really well like uh carmen maria machado in her latest memoir she did the there's a section that's like a choose your own adventure but Mm -hmm. like what you mentioned with the story that you know the story you mentioned it doesn't matter where you go that you're going to get to the same result um and then i keep thinking of um ketchum's the girl next door where he has that one chapter that's one sentence and how mm-hmm. impactful that is. So I definitely, I, I like that you brought that up about that you do it for a reason. It has to have a purpose for the reader. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I would, without reservation, recommend House of Leaves. I've read it twice, which okay. Is, okay. is an undertaking because it, is, it does take a while to, to, uh, to get through it. But right. I mean, to me, like, to me, like the, the thing about that is like you get lost into this book. It sends you on to all these different paths and mm-hmm. it's a mirror to this this isn't a really big spoiler, you know, part of this, the novel is a story about this house that's growing bigger on the inside, even though on the outside it looks the same. Um, you know, so like what's happening in the text is sort of a mirror of what, what's happening in one of the sto- stories. Um, but yeah, okay. I, I envy, yeah, I, I would recommend to give it a shot, but it will take you a while to read it because it's a big book and it sends you on some like goose chases and stuff like that. All right. Well, it's on the shelf at my little indie bookstore, and I keep passing by it, and I'm like, hmm. So I'll go ahead. All right. Um, Paul Tremblay said so. So uh, check it out. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely get a hard version. Do not try that on the Kindle. I can't yeah. imagine that that would work well. Yeah, I can know. imagine that would be. Uh, That's good advice. And also, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, who you brought up earlier, the first novel of his that I read, it's not his first novel, uh, was Demon Theory. Um which I mean, it, it it's full of footnotes that talks about all these references to different horror movies because the novel is set up as a as a, a treatment of three horror movies. Um, again, just wonderful. And if you are if you haven't read Demon Theory, you have to try to find a hardcover because for whatever reason, the hardcover it's it's footnotes in the paperback. It's endnotes, and as endnotes, it doesn't work because. You know, oh, no. with footnotes, you get to stay on the same page. You're right there. Um, so that would be my only recommendation is to track down eBay, a uh, hardcover of Demon Theory. 
How did you, I, I was curious about that, whether you, did you meet Stephen after you had started writing or was that a more longstanding relationship? Uh, after it was, I, we, I sent him a fan email essentially after reading Demon Theory. Um, yeah, we just, you know, struck up a conversation because he had read some of my short fiction and liked it. Um, and I met him in person a few years, maybe after that. He, you know, he, he travels a lot, not only for, for his book stuff, but for academia. Uh, and he came to Brown University to do a talk and we met up and um, I gave him a stack of books to sign. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just a super nice guy. Um, and he came out to ReaderCon for a few years, too. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just sort of started off that way, you know, which is how a lot of, you know, sort of relationships you strike up with other writers happen, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. He's, I mean, he, like I said, I I had not, and that's, you know, that's on me. I just didn't know really about any very many horror writers at all. So I was, I was excited. I picked up, I think it was after all the people lights, um, mm-hmm. Uh, on, I think, the recommendation in your book. And that was just excellent. And that was another thing. I was not, I really wasn't big on short stories. But again, I think that's because I hadn't read very many good ones. And I mean, those were just excellent. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, I mean, don't beat yourself up. I mean, there are so many, I mean, it's a curse and it's a, and it's a nice thing too. But there, there are just so many books out there. It's in so many talented, excellent writers, you know, you're not going to be able to get to them all, which stinks. Um, but at the same time, it's like, wow, there's just such a, a wealth of yeah. amazing, of amazing horror and just, you know, writing in general. Yeah, absolutely. So are you still, um, are you still doing the Shirley Jackson thing? Yeah, I, I'm, uh, like on the, on the board of directors. So, and, you know, and I help out a little bit like, uh, Joanne Cox, who is the administrator, you know, does so much work. She, I mean, she really is the awards at this point and the rest of us sort of just, you know, help her out when she needs it. Um, so I can't say enough about the work that Joanne does, but yeah, I'm still behind the scenes. Just, just trying to, to help out where I can. Um, and actually tonight before this podcast, I took part in a reading for Shirley Jackson day, which they usually do live in person in, in North Bennington. Um, but obviously we can't do that this year. So, Right. Um, yeah, there were four of us, and we each read um, a selection of Shirley Jackson's work, and it was really nice. Oh, cool. I wonder if they'll have that up after the fact. Yeah, they, they recorded it. Um, so, yeah, I guess keep an eye out. I'm sure yeah. you know, we'll yeah, start sharing that. Cool, cool. Um, but that was just an aside because I was curious. I remember hearing about that a while back. Um, other things, though, uh, talk about the stuff that you have either optioned or in development right now uh, that I can talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so a head full of ghosts is, you know, creeps ever closer. You know, it's been optioned for five years now at this point. Um, it's been with the same two production companies the whole time, Allegiance theater and team Downey. We were with focus features, but they backed out last year, but now cross Creek, is on board and that was announced like in February. Um, and Scott Cooper is attached as a director and he's rewriting the screenplay. Uh, Scott Cooper did, uh, was it desert heart? Is that the name of the movie with Jeff Bridges as a country singer? 
Oh, um, yeah. Crazy Heart. Crazy, crazy Heart, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was a wonderful heart. movie. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, so Scott Cooper's done a... Um, you know, he's done like four or five different films. And his movie Antlers was supposed to be coming out in April, which was getting a lot of good buzz as a horror movie. Uh, I believe it was based on a script by Nick Antosca, who... Um, oh, wow. Yeah, you know, he wrote some for Hannibal. He, he did the Channel Zero. Like, he was the showrunner for Channel Zero. Um, yeah, so anyway, so very, you know, very excited. You know, obviously, like, you know, everything in Hollywood sort of on hold in terms of... You know, I think they were hoping to film in the summer, but so who knows now. But, yeah. you know, they're, de- they're definitely thinking, of, you know, it's it's as close as it's ever been to actually becoming a thing. Um, so fingers crossed. But, you know, it's it's not a thing until the day they start shooting <laughs> is what you learn. Um, and so with Cabinet at the End of the World, that's option two by Film Nation. That's really all like the information that I can give you on that one. Um you know, and that's it. You know, I've been taking phone calls and stuff on on, on Survivor Song, but um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I understand <laughs> things are a bit crazy right now. You know, for for any movie stuff to happen, honestly, just to you know have options is great. Um, at the same time, like just what little Hollywood experience I I've had, it. It's it's it seems to me like it's a minor miracle that anything ever makes it all the way to the <laughs> to the screen because you I mean you hear about all these different things that get optioned and you know never get made um, yeah so I don't know it's um, probably the only other business that's <laughs> a little bit more strange than even publishing <laughs> that's yeah <laughs> well and it's I really feel like a head full of ghosts in particular would really translate well to the screen. You know, like I, I feel like again the the size of it and and just the creep factor on the scenes that really really got under my skin. I'm like I can really you know I I can see that being done without an outrageous budget. Yeah, I mean I I, I mean I'd be really interested to see how someone does it. I mean because you mentioned earlier how I was like sort of my riffing on horror in general. I mean that in some ways that novel's a lot about all the different horror influences you know this horror fan has had so. You know, I'd be totally excited to see what someone's take on that is. Um, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. <laughs> Hopefully it happens. Well, that would be very exciting. Our fingers are crossed, too. Thank you. Um, I always like to kind of get a little bit into process. Um, I I feel, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the things that makes it so um, just Im- immediately engaging are, are the characters, you know, and how quickly we're kind of pulled into their world. So I was curious whether you tend to start with characters and build around them, or you start with the idea and then kind of add the characters in later. Um, it can be, it, it sort of depends on the story, I guess. Um, I would say typically I get like, if there is a typically, I get an idea for the beginning and the end. <laughs> you know, and then I think about the characters and it's about how do I get them from, that start point to that end point. Um, you know, with the, with the head full of ghosts, you know, I, I started off with a vague idea of, oh, what would like a, a secular, skeptical exorcism novel look like? And then I sort of settled on the two sisters, and once I settled on them, sort of the rest of it just really came like kind of quickly. You know, I mentioned I got lucky. I feel like I just, you know, it's the one time in my life like a story sort of fell into my lap. Um, you know, a survivor song was more about like 
you know, I was starting with Natalie, who's eight months pregnant. Um, you know, and I wanted her, I wanted the, the novel to focus sort of like on her friendship. So I had to figure out who her friend was. So again, like I had a vague you know, notion of the beginning and end, uh, the beginning in mind and a vague notion of the end in mind. And then, you know, it was sort of figuring out who Natalie and, and Ramola were. And then, you know, how do I get them from point A to point B? So, yeah, that's for novels. I mean, short stories tend to be more almost like, you know, shorter scenes. I mean, again, every story is different. You know, something like Notes from the Dog Walker was <laughs> sort of its own beast in terms of where the heck that thing came from. But usually a short story comes from, you know, a character and a what if, I think. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's that's interesting. Um, do you do you feel like do you have a preference for one um, format or another, or does it just depend on what this the idea you get is? Um, it's fine. When I first started writing, it was almost all exclusively short stories. Um, you know, and then I struggled and tried some novels, and now it's I feel like it's almost flipped the other way, where I've been in novel mode, you know, really since like 2013. Um, I'm, I'm finding it harder to go back to short stories. Um, and I usually don't write a short story now unless like, I don't want to say, unless I'm like asked to, or like I have a reason to, otherwise, you know, I just sort of stay on the novel. Um, and, and I'm very happy, you know, if I do get the chance, like, you know, if someone offers to, for me to write a short story for an anthology, because sometimes it's nice to, to take like a two to three week break from like the novel that you're working on to do something totally different. Because then when I go back, I feel like I have some fresh eyes, you know, and also like a little bit of a breather. Because, you know, when I'm writing a novel, that's typically what all I'm thinking about. <laughs> you know, I'm not ignoring my wife and kids and stuff like that or my day job. But, you know, you always find yourself in your free moments, like thinking about the novel, even when you're not writing it. And a lot of times I kind of feel like that kind of like almost subconscious thought is, is really important where a lot of like problems get solved at least they do for me i yeah i agree with that it's it's one of those things when i'm talking to writers who who have had edits and they have no idea how to solve it i'm like you won't while you're thinking about it go make some tea you know (laughs) and then later later you'll suddenly realize how you're going to fix it but yeah i don't know if it's because i've like psychologically trained myself to believe this but and but at the same time i i've heard plenty of other writers say this too i oddly have so many good ideas and breakthroughs in the shower. And someone tried to tell me, oh, it's like the, it's the water in the air, it's the ionized air. And uh, I don't know if there's something to that, but now my subconscious believes it. So <laughs> um, yeah, like if, if, I'm, if I'm working on a project, I find a lot of things get fixed or tweaked <laughs> while I'm in the shower. That's Well, it makes sense, and I've heard that too. And I think maybe it's because you're just engaged in something mundane that doesn't require like your full, you know, thought process. Right. No, no, exactly. And like, like, you know, it's nice hot water, you're relaxed, you you know, probably not stressed out or as stressed out as the rest of your waking hours. So yeah, I don't know. Well, good. I'm going to mark that down on, on writer advice that we get, get in the shower, (laughs) get in the shower. This kind of goes along with what Laurel asked, um, like, like about process. Uh, one of the people I've listened to on podcasts quite a few times is Joe Lansdale. Mm-hmm. And he likes, he often talks about drafts and how 
when he's doing his drafting, he just kind of works through it, really only has like one draft, kind of edits as he goes. And I'm just curious, like what is what is your approach to that kind of thing? Um, I'm similar to Joe, only in that part, because I mean, Joe's a genius and he writes a lot faster than I do. But yeah, I, um, I wouldn't call it only one draft because I do more work after, but I, I edit as I go. Absolutely. Um, you know, typically, uh, these days, like if it's the beginning of a novel, like I'm happy if I can get three to 500 words, new words, you know, the next day I'll edit what I wrote before. If it's a novel, usually I'll go through that whole chapter before I start new, you know, start new. And some days I might need yeah. to start new. Maybe some days my 300 to 500 words were adding to what I'd had before without actually progressing deeper into the story necessarily. But that's what I do. I take like little steps and little half steps and I edit. And I find that my word count increases when I get to like the last third of the novel because, you know, this finish line is within sight. Um, <laughs> it usually, you know, gooses me to get me going a little bit faster. But yeah, by the time I have a draft, I mean, for me, I guess it's fairly clean, but, you know, I still go through it. I usually print it out. Sometimes, you know, I may not read the whole thing out loud, but I'll read big chunks of it out loud, um, you know, before it goes off to my editor. Yeah, and that makes sense. I was just, uh, I found it fascinating, you know, you hear a bunch of different writing advice from a lot of different people and yeah. really the only thing is is do what works for you so i just wanted to see you know kind of how you did that process yeah no i'm jealous of the people who can just like blah like spit it all out and then like edit <laughs> because to me like the edit editing i, I like that well I, that part feels less fraught <laughs> the editing part than the actual staring at the cursor at the at the end of a sentence with nothing in front of it um yeah we're, yeah, so. we're of like mind on that one there, sir. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot. Of, I, I feel like it's more writers than not. Are the, you know, they're the ones that like can spit it all out, and then they just redraft it, redraft it, redraft it. I mean, maybe someday I should try that. That'd be interesting. Josh Malaman was telling me once that he was, I don't know, because he read so fast, he was trying all sorts of people's ways of doing things, like him and a friend. And he said they once tried my 500 words a day thing, and they said it was driving them crazy. They couldn't do it because <laughs> 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 it was too slow for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mallerman, Mallerman is uh, he's he's a machine though. Yeah. The guy when he wrote that serial novel, I couldn't write a poem for every chapter he wrote as fast as he wrote them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was like three poems behind at any given time as he passed off chapters mm -hmm. to me. <laughs> that was complete and utter boot camp, though, so. Yep, yep. It cracks me up that he's just testing out other people's methods just for the fun. It's like, right. you know, yeah. he, once, he once had an awkward moment just to see what it felt like. That's so... <laughs> Well, that's like uh, Damien Angelica Walters. She's writing a novel, and for the first time, a new novel and for the first time she's using like a full outline and she's never done it mm. before so i just wonder what it might add if i don't know yeah you know it's funny like well, what you said earlier was perfect i mean i think people can take comfort in it but it's also frustrating that you really do have to find what works for you um but at the same time so like there's no one correct way to do to write obviously but at the same time you know i, I admire and i what 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 Damien is doing is to tr you know push yourself out of your comfort zone, um, or to try something new. Um, and, you know, and I try to make 
you know, even if my process is super similar for most of the time, you know, I, I try to find ways to make each book feel different because I don't want it to feel like oh, I'm doing this again. Um, you know, sometimes it can be just maybe, oh, there's a cool different way I'm going to format this. Um, you know, with Cam at the end of the world, I came up with this idea and I, you know, I, I'm sure someone else has done it. It's like, oh, because I've got these seven characters with, you know, they're all going to be speaking at some point. When I finish my draft, I'm going to go through and underline each character's dialogue with different color pen and then read it just to see if they sound different or how they sound. And that was actually a ton of work. And I will fully, I will fully admit, I, I only ended up doing it for like a couple of characters and like, oh, this sucks. I'm not doing this. <laughs> but, but like thinking that I was going to do it helped me get through like some of the parts. Like it was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to try this. This will be cool. You know, that'll be fun to try that even though it wasn't. <laughs> that reminds me of some of the students in my, in my English classes, you know, I like, well, try this. We'll try it. And I try to give them so many different things to try. And finally they're just like, you know what? No, like, <laughs> I can't do this, Mrs. Robinson. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's, let's try something else. <laughs> I had never thought of, of trying to do that before to just make sure that you were differentiating, you know, on the characters voices like that. But that was actually one thing I was going to ask you is because you, I was realizing how many times you had written from a female point of view um, and how just very natural it seems. So I was wondering how, you know, you made the decision to do that or whether that just seemed like those were the characters that came to you or how you worked with that. Yeah. I mean, you know, in something like A Head Full of Ghosts, it was a purposeful choice, like just in terms of the story, because I wanted to, I know I wanted to sort of comment on, you know, make a commentary on why all these exorcism stories always choose like a young girl to be possessed, you know, for example. Um, you know, and part of the what if for Survivor Song, you know, involved, you know, Natalie, who's pregnant. So I kind of had to start from there. Um, you know, some of it... You know, some of the choices just by feel. Um, yeah, I thank you for 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 saying that you, you've enjoyed, you know, my, my women characters. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing I really try to think about, you know, when I, obviously I'm off so often writing characters whose life experience, you know, as a as a blanket statement, whose life experience is much different than mine. You know, I my hope is that, you know, if I treat these characters with enough humanity and empathy, and if I, you know, I can leave enough space in the text for the reader to bring their own experience to it. And hopefully like, some combination of that, you know, makes them seem, you know, hopefully realistic slash interesting. I think that's extremely effective. I think that I feel like the two in particular that, that really hit me were Elizabeth um, in disappearance at devil's rock. Yeah. You know, because just seeing all that through her eyes was just, it was harrowing, but it was just, I just felt like it was so real. Um, and, and also, yeah, Natalie, uh, (laughs) I was reading it thinking like he really paid a lot of of attention to his wife when she was pregnant. So that's good. (laughs) Cause a lot of that stuff was like, uh huh. Yes, that's exactly Uh right. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah, with her, I was like, you know, I wanted to, with Natalie in particular, I wanted to, I, I sort of limited the times it was from her point of view, because I didn't want to, I certainly didn't want to be like 
as a writer telling people, oh, this is what it's like to be a pregnant woman. So like she's really not the point of view character very often. You just get to hear her saying things, um, you know, with the exception of her making recordings, which there are a few in the novel. Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, with Elizabeth, you know, my my connection to her obviously is being a parent. And, you know, m- most of my parental fears went into, you know, went into her in that book. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I would wager that most writers are the same way, but I kind of feel like, you know, not every character I write is me, but there's a part of my personality or a part of me in them. You know, I can't always describe what part that is. Um, but I'm always, you know, putting myself or at least part of myself into all those characters shoes just to it's only fair to ask myself the questions that I'm going to ask the characters. I don't know if that's trite or not, but I, I, I sort of envision it that way too, I think. No, I don't, I don't think that's trite. I think that that's actually a hugely key into why the characters are so, mm-hmm. you know, engaging. I think it is that empathy, you know, the ability to put your, to put yourself in their shoes and, and figure out what they're feeling. So I, I appreciate that insight on the process as well. Thank you. Now, do you when you're when you're creating characters? Here's a question for you that that one sparked. Um, the uh, like, do you come you come up with some of the stories you come up with? Like, uh, say you did Head Full of Ghosts, and then in Growing Things, you have a couple of stories that uh, reprise those characters in mm-hmm. total, totally different scenarios. Well, I mean, at least one of them is completely different. Um, <laughs> did those did those come along when you're developing them for your novels, or vice versa? Or? Um, so, so the story growing things itself existed before a head full of ghosts. So actually, that was a case of when okay. I was writing the novel, a head full of ghosts. I went back and cannibalized a short story that I wrote. You know, gotcha. Because um, it featured you know two sisters, like oh, that'd be kind of cool. Like the sisters tell each other stories, um, and even then, like I didn't necessarily anticipate that like the growing thing story would fit so well with like would fit so well with the theme of the book, like with what was sort of actually going on, or hinting at what might happen with you know his um, her her dad. Um, yeah, so so that short story existed before Head Full of Ghosts, and then I don't know I I don't think I would ever write a sequel. To a head full of ghosts, unless I'm like, I don't know, maybe if I'm 65 and I need to retire, then maybe I would. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I thought it would like, oh, be kind of fun to do like some short, you know, because the sisters tell each other stories. It would be kind of fun to, to play with that, like have a story where the story is another story that, the, that Mary and Marjorie had told each other. Right. So that, that was sort of where, you know, the last story in Growing Things came from. Um yeah, 13th something, I don't remember. Yeah, the, th- the 13th Temple. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've written a couple more, you know, short ones that sort of messes with the two sisters. One that ended up being in Fangoria magazine last year. Um, yeah, so the next time I do a short story collection, there might be a couple. You know, th- those two might make their way in. Cool, cool. Uh, two of my favorite characters of yours. Um, Thank you. And they also 
bring me to something that I really don't want to forget, and I'll give somebody else a chance here in a second. Um, but uh, all of your not every single one, but the vast majority of your stories, um, there's a really heavy thread of family running through them, particularly the novels. Um, that seems to be something you're both comfortable with and, and that you kind of favor in, in your storylines, your plots. So, yeah. Um, it was funny. Like I mentioned, my first started writing, it was almost exclusively short stories you know, my first son was born, or my first child was born in 2000. Um, and I really wasn't very serious with writing in the few years. I'd, I'd mess around with it, but prior to 2000, but after he was born, I started getting more serious about writing. Um, and I had a friend point out to me, he's like, do you know that so many of these short stories are about, like, kids or about, you know, parental anxieties? And I, I, I didn't even notice. You know, so by the time A Head Full of Ghosts, you know, rolled around, I clearly knew that was... You know, something that I wrote about quite frequently. Um, I don't know. On one hand, I just think it's such, it's one of the few universal experiences that we all have. Like, we've all been a child. We've all had, um, you know, a relationship with a parent or a guardian of, of some sort. Um, you know, and that, I don't know. I, it's funny. Like, I have a terrible memory in some ways. But in other ways, I, I feel like I vividly remember the emotional life of a, of a teenager, of a, of a kid. And it's weird that I still think of myself and sometimes as like as a kid. Um, so when I was a writer, it's, it's hard for me not to, to, to keep going back to that, you know, because it, especially as a, a teen or a child or as a teen, I, I, I don't know, I, I remember thinking about the future and, you know, I was... <clears throat> In the in the 1980s, when I was, you know, I graduated high school in like 1989, so like essentially was growing up in the 80s. Um, you know, I was definitely afraid of dying in a nuclear war. So like my my vision of the future was there was always a fear <laughs> of the future, but also like you know still in day to day life there was obviously this excitement on what you know what am I going to be as an adult or so that for me there was always that like two you know, two parts of it, to it. And it felt a lot more accentuated. I mean, I think as an adult, obviously those fears are still there. Like what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, what am I going to do? But like, as an adult, I feel like you can get so lost in the day-to-day stuff of responsibilities. Whereas a child and a teenager, I mean, you're like forced to think about it. Like, ah, what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> you know, how many times were you asked that question as a child? Um, so I don't know. I, I find myself always drawn to that. Um, oh shoot, there was something else I was going to add to that too. I don't know. Um, in growing up, I, you know, I really didn't have a lot of friends and, you know, I basically just stayed home all the time at a close family. would go to my grandparents' house every Sunday. So I don't know for me as a kid, like my family was sort of my, you know, my lifeline, like my, my <laughs> you know, they were who I with every day. I have, I had a brother and sister you know, we were close, but we also fought like hell, you know, so that was fraught to, um, as adults, like we're best friends now, which is, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to say that. So I don't know. Family life to me has always been like this heightened part of my life. Um, so it'd be, I don't know, impossible for me not to write about it. I, I yeah. like, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Shane. No, be my guest. This is the first time you interrupted me all night. So I feel <laughs> 
yeah, we can't we can't lose our our quota on that. Um, I was just going to say, I think that's you know that interesting that you still maintain that sort of emotional memory of how it felt to be that age. And I, does that do you feel like that really kind of assists you when you're parenting your kids? Oh boy, um, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I'm not being fair to myself. You know, like I think like most people, you're always hardest on yourself for for failures and perceived failures as you are for your successes. Um, you know, my kids are amazing, open-minded, you know, young adults, essentially now 15 and 19. I couldn't be more proud of them. So I guess I couldn't have screwed them up too much. Um, but I think also part of it is I've never left the kid's calendar. Like when I say the kid's calendar, you know, school and in the Northeast, the school ends in June, we go back in September. So every June, I'm like, you know, so happy and excited. And every September I'm super depressed. And it's just like this body cycle that I'm on because I, I went to high school, then I went to college, and right out of college, I went to grad school for two years, and right out of grad school, I started teaching. And I've been teaching, I just finished my 25th year. So I've, ne- I've never left the school calendar, never. Um, so I don't know, maybe I've just actually physically trained myself, to, <laughs> part of me, to, 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 to think like that, you know, to, to, to think like the school child. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Is that your experience too, Tracy? Uh, well, I had a like a, maybe a five-year break, but my dad was a teacher, so we always had him home during the summer, right. and then and then undergrad, then like a five-year break, then grad school, then teaching, then more grad school, and I haven't taught as long as Paul, but yeah, it's like as soon as summer hits, it's it's like a different feel a different universe almost <laughs> like yeah. if you read uh ray bradbury's uh dandelion dandelion wine mm-hmm. yeah uh that feeling like i still feel that like summer is magical it just is yeah absolutely yeah i love that i wonder why it's the fall that always kind of captures me it's like it's not like i ever wanted to go back to school but i don't know that that always seemed like the magical time of year, but I also sunburn really bad, so maybe. That's <laughs> no, like one of my one of my one of my life's wishes is to you know, someday you know whether I retire from teaching or if I I quit before I retire that because I do love the fall weather up here that so, you know someday I hope that oh September is going to be awesome October is going to be great, but I'm not there, <laughs> <laughs> not there yet. there's a little bit of like first night before school starts jitters that then yeah (laughs) it's it's not the same kind of magic yeah (laughs) uh so paul um one thing i wanted to ask you about and i i kind of asked this about my uh with my co-host too is Um, I don't know how I first became aware of this, but I follow you on Twitter and just uh, even other writers' Twitters. I have to ask you uh, why you hate pickles so much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I don't know if there's a reason. I mean, I just have always hated them. I was, I was probably, I was one of the pickiest eaters ever as a kid. I'm not exaggerating. Um, Painfully skinny. I went through a phase, like in high school, honestly, where I didn't like bread. 
I would bring Ritz crackers and peanut butter <laughs> for my lunches. <laughs> but no, pickles, it's horrible. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I there's guess a what's why. so funny about that is people <laughs> yeah. tag you in everything pickle. Yeah. yeah. I see That's something pickle, I'm like, there's there's a tag for Paul Tremblay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Go ahead, Shane. Oh, yeah, I was just gonna say I always I always avoid tagging you and things like that because it seems like it'd be traumatic by now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I had to ask because like I like I saw the same thing, Tracy. Like everyone would tag him about it. So I'm like, is there is there some kind of deeper story there? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think yeah. I'm actually I think I've at least done it once, maybe twice. So guilty, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. If um uh, you know, it's just a fun way to needle somebody, I guess, with needle them with pickles. If I'm ever <laughs> if I'm ever gonna be remembered for anything, it'll be that I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> <And> that's okay. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> And uh, another another question I like to ask is like when you write, do you prefer to write in silence or do you listen to music? And if so, what kind of music do you like to listen to? You know, I think it's changed. It always used to be silence, but in recent years, and I, like I don't really have like a closed off office in my house. It's you know there's a couple of open doorways, so if there's so basically if there's if there's noise, I have to put on earphones with music to, to draw, uh, to draw, drown, drown stuff out. So, but I think I'm, unfortunately now I'm at the point where I've sort of trained myself that I sort of need the music, um, to write. I mean, it's not a huge problem, but it's interesting, like how you train your subconscious to do things when you don't even realize it. But, uh, if I'm listening to music, it has to be, it kind of, it kind of has to be without lyrics because I, I like to focus on lyrics so they would distract me. Um, so I listen to a lot of, movie soundtracks um most recently i've been using mark corvin or is it coven mark corvin he did the soundtrack for the witch and the lighthouse which are um oh yeah for me it's yeah. really great soundtracks to write to for years and years my go-to soundtrack was the 99 movie ravenous oh. um and I don't use it as much anymore because, uh, for boring reasons, it's no longer in my iTunes. Like it's not, it's not there. Um, I had it burnt off a CD onto an old Mac that doesn't work anymore. Um, so I'll go to YouTube and listen to that sometimes. But I, I love that soundtrack. Um, and also, it's like almost like a perfect hour too. Like if I know I only have an hour, I can put that soundtrack on and just it helps me really focus in for that hour. Um, Trying to think of other soundtracks that I've used a lot. There's a band called Mogwai that does a lot of instrumental yeah. stuff. Yes, I love um, Mogwai. Yeah. Same. Um, I guess the, I've done Swan's Lunacy. Actually, I did that for a lot of Devil's Rock. That has a few lyrics here and there, but it's more sort of like a droning chanting, like I'm not going to focus in on it kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I've always been interested when I ask writers that question, and it seems like the overwhelming majority, like when they listen to music, it is soundtracks, and it didn't really even occur to me until just now, is that like maybe it has something to do with the fact that, 
you know, you're in the process of creating and those soundtracks kind of have are kind of built for the film. You're not seeing the visuals, but they kind mm. of have like that ebb and flow that kind of, you know, match, you know, kind of the pace marks you might want to hit within your novel. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's kind of the mood, too. Um, I was curious how you I, I think I learned of Mogwai through reading Ian Rankin. Did you come across them from another? It's been a while. Um, it's an older EP, too. So I, I'm sure I read about them somewhere. And obviously, I mean, it's a really cool band name, too. Yeah. <laughs> <Obviously> <laughs> reference to horror. Uh, yep. Yeah. Well, I was I sort of almost started when I was reading survivor song i started when i was looking at the different ways that people were kind of reacting you know to the crisis and i was thinking in particular when people were doing things like you know jumping the curb or cutting out of traffic um i guess i was just thinking with my husband and i he'd be the guy who you know jumped the curb and did whatever and you know squealed tires and i'd probably still be in line and dead because oh. <laughs> I wouldn't move. So I was just kind of curious, you know, how yeah. you would how you would classify yourself. What what sort of a, a an apocalyptic uh, character would you be? Oh, I'd be terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think it's a fear for everybody's. But like, besides, you know, family stuff, we, which we talked about. I think for a while, I took a detour from like 2004 to 2010 where like all my, all the short stories, not all the short stories, but a ton of the short stories I wrote were either apocalyptic or pre-apocalyptic or like in the process of some sort of apocalypse. Um, a prior short story collection called in the meantime, I think like 10 of the 13 stories were, you know, all featured some sort of apocalypse. So, you know, if one was happening, I, I'd just be so terrified. I mean, I would try my best obviously for, you know, to try to get, you know, my loved ones, you know, to where we need to go. But if like my reaction to the first few weeks of quarantine or any indication, I don't think I'd be much help because the first two weeks, <laughs> the first two weeks we were home, like I basically just laid on the couch and watched like Mythbusters, Dirty Jobs and Animal Planet because I just couldn't <laughs> deal. I just couldn't deal <laughs> with, you know, I couldn't read. I could, um, it took me a little while to to be able to start reading i was just so you know redlined anxiety wise yeah i mean i think that's a i think that's a really normal response though it was as much as it didn't seem like imminent danger you know when you're when you're at home it's still i mean just utter insanity no absolutely and you know it was weird it, it, for me it coincided with my spring break at my school my school does two weeks off in march like the day before was it March 14th or 13th or something like that? Massachusetts, you know, said, ah, the schools, well, we decided to close one day early. And then I think two days later, Massachusetts said, yeah, all schools are, are done. Uh, my son was in college in Los Angeles and we were like trying to figure out how we we're going to get him back. And, you know, scrambling, scrambling to get him, you know, a plane ticket back. You know, I, I was canceling like trips because I was actually going to go out to L.A. for my first week of spring break to visit him and see some friends. So it was it was just, a, you know, as, as it was for everybody, just a terrifying, hectic time. 
And it's sort of weird that in a lot of ways that we're, we're sort of used to this existence and I don't want to be used to it. <laughs> um, no, me either. No. And obviously with the case of spiking in the United States, there's reason to not be used to it and terrified again. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be terrified <laughs> yeah. um, today, but there are, and it, I mean, it is, it does feel weird to be used to it. And I, I have a two year old at home, so it's not really been peaceful, but mm-hmm. <laughs> getting us, I feel like when we do finally all go back, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Cause like he hasn't worn pants in three months. <laughs> so I just, I'm not sure how uh, this is going to be. Neither have I. I haven't had a haircut since early March, I think. People remarked on it. Remarked on it during the Shirley Jackson reading. I got to find a, either just let let my daughter do it, or you know things are a little bit better in Massachusetts. Although I don't know, we'll see. Maybe I'll we'll get a haircut. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> our school districts are talking about uh, planning on being back in full session August 13th, and I just mm. I don't know. Our boy, I mean, I'm in Ohio. Okay. Uh, our, our cases are rising, but not like. Not, not, not like Florida's. They had like 9,000 today. Right. But it's just, it's different. This generation, I mean, I guess we're part of this generation too. We have another. Where were you when? Like when you were talking about your spring break and then schools closed. Two days before our schools closed, my car was totaled. I saw my kids for two days and then it was oh. over. And so yeah. it's like... I, you know, do I even know how to do face-to-face teaching anymore? I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so, it's so odd. It's just weird. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to police my language when I get back to work too. Cause I'm just, <laughs> just very much used to being at home now. So. <laughs> hey Laurel, uh, what do you need motherfucker? <laughs> Okay, okay. So because of all the things we're talking about, back to Survivor Song, is there mm-hmm. anything that you would tweak or add in now? Now that you know like you've seen how we've reacted to a pandemic like this? Great. Um that's a good question. I mean, so part of you know, for people who haven't read it, or which is pretty much everybody <laughs> who's listening to this because it isn't out yet, or will be just out. Um, you know, part of the other thing I want to write or to, to put into the book was it's almost like with the exception of a few parts, the novel's pretty much told in real time. So it's really four to six hours, you know, in the, in the day of, of Ramola and Natalie. So, you know, like quarantine life really wouldn't play a part. It was funny. One of my worries in the book was, um, was sort of like, you know, I wanted to, you know, I mentioned in the book, like misinformation and and wild and conspiracy theories, like end up playing a little bit of a role in what what happens. Um, And I guess (laughs) in retrospect, I was like, oh yeah, I guess I feel like my conspiracy theories were a little, and that, and that sort of reaction was a little bit tame than than what actually has ended up happening. Um, (laughs) So I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I'm glad I didn't get everything right because that would have been like too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, I was just curious. I, I'm actually, I yeah. think one of the people in here that hasn't, I haven't finished it yet, so okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that it was only like the four to six hours. I was just curious to see if there was anything like, ooh, that would have been a good thing to put in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If anything, I, I feel more almost like the other way, apologetic. Like, ah, I wish it wasn't. You no, know, I mean it's just a, a goofy way, the stupid way to think about it. But like, I wish it wasn't as, um, I don't know, wasn't as close to what's happening in some ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it was definitely some of it was just so on point that I was like, uh, yeah, it's kind of, like it's kind <laughs> yeah. of, it's kind of sad that it was that predictable, you know. But, yeah. um, yeah, it just did happen that way. And it's, I mean, it's one of those things that it's like I. At the day that I read it, we just so happened our systems went down at work. And so I was totally disconnected from everyone. And I was like, oh, good. I, I have time to read. But that just made it that much more eerie. Right. I had to keep <laughs> looking outside and be like, OK, I'm not. First of all, I'm not eight months pregnant. That's awesome. And second of all, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not actually disconnected from everyone. Just people. at right. work. <laughs> but it's I mean, it just does. It does that excellent job. I think I messaged Shane because I had started it the night before and I was like, what is wrong with me? I know better than to start a Paul Tremblay right before I'm yep. trying to go to bed. This is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was because uh, I think my response was and you deserve every single minute of it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad uh, it works for you. Sorry if it kept you up, though. <laughs> no, it was worth it. There's there's a reason I dove in. I, I can't I can't ever resist when I've got my hands on. It, so, um, yeah, I'm gonna try not to gush over you too much. But this, but I really Thank you. am. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I do really, really enjoy your work. So, yeah, let's do that for a second, though. I mean, seriously, every single time I get a Paul Tremblay book in my hands, it's like I want to take all this other crap on my desk and just sweep it to the floor, you know, (laughs) you know, and that's very few authors do that, you know, and I know that I could ask any of hundreds of readers that either follow me or I follow that would say the same thing about your work. So, well, that's incredibly kind and means a lot. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I really appreciate it. You know, when you write, you just hope that, you know, I don't know, like I try to write things that I would want to read and then like you hope other people will too. Um, so it's, I mean, it's very nice to hear. I appreciate it. Uh, very, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, go, go ahead. <laughs> I think we're saying, I think we're basically saying the same thing. Uh, uh, absolutely. And we're very glad that you do <laughs> write it that way. <laughs> Well, actually, I was going to also say that uh, the movie Up messes me up every time, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't I was, watched that. Yeah, have you not? Okay, we'll be prepared because you are going to cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, impossible not to. I just I made a note here when I was reading it. I was like, oh, yeah, all those balloons. It killed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything you can talk about as far as what's coming next? what you think you're going to work on or is that one of those like dear god i'm trying to launch a book why is everyone asking us <laughs> uh no i i am working on a i'm working on a new novel it's been in fits and starts um going kind of slowly at first and then like i don't know i've written i don't know about 50 pages 
Um, I don't know. I, I kind of hope it's a little bit different. Like, I, I feel like I don't want to say too much about it just yet. Um, but it might be going back to some ambiguous supernatural stuff. But um, I don't know. We'll see. It's um, I'll say it's it's sort of being written as like a faux memoir of some character. But then, like, there's somebody else who comments on the memoir. So there's really two characters that sort of bounce off each other for a while. Um, Yeah. So we'll see. I like it. Well, and I mean, a return to the to the ambiguous supernatural absolutely works. Because I I mean, I feel like it's kind of like your your trademark thing, but it doesn't it's all so different. You know, it's not like it's it's repeating anything at all. So. Well, thanks. I hope, you know, again, it's like trying to make sure there's a reason <laughs> that that has to be there. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, it's, you know, when you're in it, especially in the beginning, it's always so hard. It's like you can't imagine one. You can't imagine ever being done. That's sort of been one disappointment. <laughs> That's sort of been one disappointment of, you know, even though I'm up to like, eight, I guess, eight novels now, you're counting like the small press stuff. Like you would think you would. Well, I would think it would get easier, and I feel like it's getting harder, like in terms of the self-doubt and the anxiety and some of the pressure you put on yourself. You would think, oh, yeah, I've already done this X amount of times. I'll be able to do it this time, but it doesn't quite work like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the fantasy of finishing and just like, you know what? I could be proud with what I've done and then sitting on the couch and watching all the shows and movies on Netflix that I don't watch. is a nice little fantasy but um (laughs) so far i keep i guess i keep going back to the laptop at least for one more at least for a few more we'll see (laughs) is part of that you feel like you know because you you have been getting some recognition and do you feel like that's a lot more pressure on you or pressure that you put on yourself no it's definitely both um i don't know and also just like I, you're talking about process and you know, types of writers that people are. And I don't know, I, I'm not someone who's got like this well of ideas waiting for me. Like I, I know people like, Oh yeah, I've got like five or six novel ideas, you know, just sitting there, you know, waiting for me to, to do them. I'm like, Oh man, I don't have any, <laughs> like each time I feel like I'm starting from, from scratch, you know, I've got like a bunch of failed ideas, like ideas I tried to play with you know, that I keep around, but I hardly ever end up going back to them. So, you know, like when I signed the book deal with Cabin at the End of the World, um, you know, it was a three book deal. It was Cabin, it was a short story collection, and then it was another novel. Um, And I pitched them 50 pages of Cabin with like a a brief summary. Um, And with the short story collection, I had most of the stories done already. I said I would write a cup, I would write one that attaches to a head full of ghosts and one that attaches to disappearance of devil's rock. But I had no idea what those stories were. And as far as like what novel, what, what the other novel would be, I had no idea. I was writing cabin and it wasn't like I had a backup novel waiting for me. So now, like, especially in that moment when you don't have a, like, if you're okay, I have to find, figure out what the next novel is. And I have no idea what it is that, that, that's, that's the, biggest i mean it makes sense it would be the biggest hurdle because you don't know what the hell to do um and again i'm jealous of the writers who just like start with like a little idea and have no idea where they're going and they write like a brilliant book like i know ramsey campbell doesn't 
outline. He you know has no idea where he has an idea for his book and he starts writing it. He doesn't know how it's going to end. I think Stephen King says he does it that way too. And uh, that's amazing and fascinating to me. I, I could not imagine doing something like that. Cause even with the head full of ghosts, I didn't write a summary. I usually do, but I knew, I knew like the hazy ending. Like I knew what it, sort of what it was going to be. Um, I don't know. So another long rambly answer, just saying, I wish I had more ideas hanging around that I knew that I would do. Um, but I don't, but at least I have one now cause I'm working on yeah. it. <laughs> and one at a time seems to be working quite well for you, at least yeah. uh, from, from a reader's perspective anyway. <laughs> Thanks. I know from a creator's perspective, I know that sucks because it's a curse of mine too, that I basically can only think of one thing at a time. Right. But, uh, um, I don't want to push us too late here. I know you're a little bit tired. And, um, Poor Paul. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the old man needs his rest. I think I've, I think I've got the senior status in this group. So <laughs> you're over there on the you're over there on the west coast, though. It's it's ten fifteen here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't phase me. Ask Laurel. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Tracy, I'm glad someone else respects that that's just outrageously late. So. <laughs> oh, I'll stay up late. But my like my ability to like hold a conversation starts deteriorating rapidly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's fine. I, I mentioned my kids live like vampires because they're older. But, you know, like during my wife, Lisa, works from home, obviously, like most people now, but she's still working from home. You know, so she and I are going to bed at like, I don't know, 1030, usually by 11. But our two kids were 15 and 19, like, you know, staying up much later, like <laughs> three or four, maybe. Yeah. Because yeah, most days they're getting up super late. But, That's... Some know, people. Just, just going to let them be them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm one of them, so I don't go to bed before four in the morning usually. Oh, really? So, oh, man. Yeah. That's when I write is when everybody else in the world is quiet. Uh, and you write at the end of the day like that or I guess the end of the night? Yeah. Well, well I guess I, I mean, during the school year, I guess that's me, except my end of the night is like, you know, I'm writing from like 830 to 10 or something. Right. <laughs> and then I go to right. bed. <laughs> Which is saner. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I First off, is there anything else that you desperately want to talk about before we let you go? Paul? Anything we missed other than, what is it, July 7th Survivor Song releases? That's like a Tuesday? Yeah, it's a Tuesday, yeah, July 7th. Um, you know, support support your local indie bookstore, you know, in your library. You know, if they're, whether you can get a hard copy from your library or, a, or an e-copy, you know, please support your libraries and your indie stores. Um we have a, I want to give a, like a, a mention to an indie store that's in my hometown where I grew up. That's where my mother lives. Uh, it's, a, it's in Beverly. It's called uh, Copper Dog Books. And they're relatively new. They're so nice. Like my mom is 70 and she lives alone in a, a very small apartment. Um, and she has COPD. So she has to be really careful about being out. And, um, you know, Copper Dog has been like delivering her books, you know, when I order them. Like bring him to her apartment. The owner Meg even once said, "Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Do you want me to pick up anything for your mom?" I mean, 
Come on. Oh like, my god. Yeah, you know, I, I said wonderful. no. She, she's okay. You don't you don't have to do that. But um, you can order online from Copper Dog if you don't have a indie near you, and, and you know they'll mail it to you wherever you live. So otherwise, you know, please, you know, you're a local indie. Please support them. Yeah. But it sounds like that one is very worthy of being supported with that kind of support they're giving to their communities. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, Laurel, Rich, Tracy, anything you want to finish up with? No, just uh, other than to say thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Tracy, yeah, I want to know um, if you've bought any new T-shirts recently. <laughs> ah, good question. Uh, <laughs> no, I've had some strange sort of quarantine purchases, especially at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I, I've referred, you know, <laughs> even like embarrassing, like survival stuff. Like I think I, I bought like a, like a water canteen that like, that filters the water. If you're so desperate, like, uh, <laughs> it'd be out, like taking water from the local pond or something. I don't know why I thought I had to buy that. Um, that was like the first, that was like the first week of panic. I haven't bought a lot of T-shirts. I've been under under control, but I bought <laughs> I have bought two within the last few months. One is a replica of an old punk rock club that was in Providence when I lived in Providence when I was in college. In the it's called Club Babyhead, which is an <laughs> awesome place <laughs> um, and a great title for a club. And then I, I yeah. bought a a um, American Werewolf in London T-shirt. Recently, one of the new ones from Fright Rags. It looks like a comic book cover, almost. What? I uh, just watched uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil last night for the first time. Yes. And now I desperately want the 2014 <laughs> Fright Rags t-shirt that is probably nowhere. About uh, now. So I had to ask because yeah. I knew you love your t-shirts. So. Yeah. Well, I think you can always ask them to like, if you could request a, a reprinting, if they get enough requests, sometimes they end up bringing back an old t-shirt, I think. Good to know. Well, yeah, I, I just want to reiterate, you know, thank you very much for coming on and to our listeners absolutely pick up survivor song. But like I tweeted about, please don't start reading it. If you have literally anything else to do, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not going to be able to so. <laughs> heads up. <laughs> Thank you. Very kind. <laughs> Paul, uh, thank you. Um, everybody, like Laurel said, pick up Survivor's Song, uh, and we hope to talk to you again very soon, Paul. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Have a good night, sir. All right. Good night. Thanks. Good night. Good night. See you. <laughs> Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.